Hey everyone, welcome to this episode of SG Explained. We're back again after this is like our third episode, I think. Third episode in the third season. Yeah, alright. Once again, if you guys are tuning in for the first time, uh, I'm Elliot. My name's Rovek. And uh, today we got a pretty interesting topic uh, to share with you guys. It's a bit of a throwback to, a, to an old one because the last time we did talk a little bit about hawker culture and how we submitted it to be selected or at least shortlisted for a UNESCO culture series of what they do. And it's pretty cool that for a small country like Singapore, we actually do have a World Heritage Site that is essentially the Botanical Gardens, which honestly, is it's such a big part of our country. But at the same time, it's not really what is touted on the brochures, right? When people think of Singapore, <laughs> yeah. they think of the Malayan, they think of Marina Bay Sands, they think of maybe even Sentosa. But actually, you have the Botanical Gardens, which is an amazing place, definitely deserving of the World Heritage. Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. And that's why I thought like this would be a really good topic for us to talk about today because there is a lot of history that goes involved in this. First and foremost, let's let's kind of like set the precedent where this entire establishment uh, has its roots in the history. And you know how much we love history here, Rovic. I'm a huge history buff, so it's, it's very natural. This all starts in 1822. Its first iteration, okay, it's not where it is today, but its first iteration was the Botanical and Experimental Garden at Fort Canning, founded by none other than Sir Stamford Raffles. He was, in fact, naturalist. So he loved all things nature. Yeah, I mean, if you've listened to the Raffles episode, you would know this as well, that Raffles was super into documenting like the flora and fauna of almost every place that he went to in the Javanese islands and, and, and in Singapore as well. So this seems like a very natural thing for him to do. He started the Botanical and Experimental Garden uh, with like a main task in mind, and that was to evaluate for cultivation crops, which were like... In terms of like building Singapore, it was like this potential economic importance, right? Including like mm-hmm. stuff like yielding fruits, vegetables, spices, other raw materials. However, this place didn't last super duper long and it closed in 1829. It wasn't until like 30 years later where the present Singapore Botanical Gardens is right now. Uh, that began in 1859 when the Singapore Agri-Horticulture Society was granted 32 hectares of land. 32 hectares is no small number. You will see how it pales in comparison to what we have today. <laughs> so 32 hectares was a starting, but it grew even more. We are much bigger as to what it, it used to be back then. So this is the first expansion, right? 32 hectares of land uh, in Tanglin by the colonial government itself. So our British colonial masters, they gave us this 32 hectares of land, which had been obtained from the merchant Huake, known as Wampo, in exchange for land at Boki. So this was kind of like a like a butter swap. And Wampo was one of those like rich merchants in Singapore that definitely like contributed to a lot of Singapore's development as an economic center. People owned land and people were trying to develop things for different reasons. And so the fact that the Agri-Horticultural Society was able to even negotiate this is a pretty big deal. Uh, the new gardens, like it started functioning primarily as like this pleasure park. Pleasure park sounds very wrong. Yeah, it sounds very wrong. But that was like the term they used back then. It was like, hey, welcome to, come to Singapore's first pleasure park. There's this man who's pretty important in the development of our new botanical gardens. His name is Lawrence Niven and he was hired as the superintendent and landscape designer to what was essentially back then like an overgrown plantation and it's like a tanglement of a virgin rainforest and it was his job to make this into a 
hospitable public park. Call order. It was very much so. I tried to look for photos. Did you search for pleasure park? <laughs> <laughs> I searched for Singapore Botanic Gardens 1859 and it was like nothing, dude. <laughs> so here's team, like they worked on developing the gardens. This garden was given this English landscape sort of feel to it. This included a series of like interconnecting pathways and promenades, a leveled parade area for military bands to play music, and the establishment of ornamental plantings. The whole idea of making things very scenic instead of just like being super functional. It was about enjoyment and chilling. Anyway, the layout of the garden as it is today right now and still continues to do so is largely based on uh, Lawrence Niven's design. Here's the sad part and the round two of where things kind of like shut down is that the Singapore Agri-Horticultural Society ran out of funds, <laughs> which led to the colonial government taking over the management of the gardens in 1874. It's probably obvious at this point that the English landscape garden movement is not a very cheap <laughs> way to design your gardens. <laughs> uh, definitely not. I mean, come on. You, they were building those like gazebo style huts already back in the day. And it's a, one of the big reasons why we still keep that style of hut. And you know, you were talking about what it would have looked like before Lawrence Niven like actually went in and did his work. And actually right on that road, there are a lot of rainforest like areas, right? Where you can almost bash in and go into the actual forest. Yeah, that's probably like the comparison that you that you want to make, right? Between like the botanic gardens as it is and some of these rainforest areas where actually that was what they were trying to convert. Put it this way, we could have had our military exercises in those forests. And instead now it is one of the best curated places. Uh, one of the first achievements was that we pioneered orchid hybridization by this professor named Eric Holtum and he was a director of the gardens from 1925 to 1949. So this is after of course colonial government a takeover. This is very pioneering in a sense because his techniques led to Singapore being one of the world's top centers of commercial orchid growing. We were sending flowers across the world and that's that's no surprise to us. I mean if you think about our national flower as well uh, all these things are very well cultivated and till this very day the botanical gardens holds the largest collection of tropical plant specimens. Singapore is so well associated with orchids, especially because of the botanical gardens, right? And we'll talk a bit about the National Orchid Garden later. It's so interesting that orchid hybridization kind of became our thing. And at the root of it was basically the gardens over here. So the next chapter of the botanical gardens was during the Japanese occupation from 1942 to 1945. Uh, this man called Hidezo Tanagatate, a professor of geology from the Tohoku Imperial University, learned of the possibility that the gardens and the museum might be looted due to the occupation. And so he negotiated directly with General Tomoyuki Yamashita to gain control of the Singapore Botanic Gardens and the Raffles Museum. So essentially, this guy, he, he saw the occupation that was going to happen. He knew that huge source of horticultural knowledge and opportunity was at risk. And so he went to broker basically the preservation of this area. At the beginning of the occupation, he ensured that no looting occurred in the gardens and in the museum. And both institutions continue to function as scientific institutions. Uh, Eric Holtum, the man that we talked about previously, who was pioneering orchid hybridization, as well as Edward John Henry Connor, were interned in the gardens and instructed to continue their horticultural work under Hidetsu. And the Japanese government and army were unwilling to fund the institutions. However, Hidetsu 
had to pay for maintenance and staff salaries from his own pocket. So this is the level that he went to to preserve the gardens, right? That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. It was renamed for a while as Shonan Botanic Gardens. When he did so, returned to Japan in July 1943. Dr. Kwan Kuriba, a retired professor of botany from the Kyoto Imperial University and Sec General of the Imperial Japanese Army's Malayan military administration department was appointed director to the gardens. And so the Japanese really oversaw and preserved the gardens even during the occupation. It speaks really to the value of the gardens. You have to compare that to some of the current occupations that are happening, whether it's in Syria or in other parts of theaters of conflict. And you can see that they're actually tearing down and attacking huge heritage sites. Yeah, cultural symbols, exactly. That's such a sad thing because it's not something that can be rebuilt. It's not something that can be easily emulated again. And so it's super important to preserve these things. And the fact that the Botanic Gardens was actually preserved during this very tenuous moment is a huge thing for our history. They did quite a lot of research uh, during the Japanese occupation and some of their efforts actually spill into programs that we see in this day and age. After the war ended, the gardens was handed back to the control of the British in September 1945 and Dr. Kwan Kuriba was made a prisoner of war. But Edward John Henry Connor, who was one of the people that was interned at the gardens under the Japanese, he negotiated for Kuriba's release with British command, basically saying when Dr. Kwan Kuriba was in charge, he really did a lot to protect the gardens. But Dr. Kuriba chose instead to remain in custody alongside his countrymen until his release in January 1946. So I guess to Dr. Kuriba, he was really trying to be loyal to his country. You know, this whole Japanese occupation thing, we probably want to do a full episode to really understand some of the conflict, some of the complexities, because as much as it's a very painful moment for a lot of people's memories, there's so much that happened. And when you look at individual people making decisions, you realize not everyone is your general Yamashita who is basically just trying to, to subjugate everyone. This is such a human story, right? Two people working in uh, the garden, interning there, and then once the war is over, you're like, hey, man, I really want to work with him again. I just realized this is like a great candidate for like a movie, right? Like you could totally imagine period piece where it's about the tension and protecting the garden and developing it. Oh, that's such a great idea. Why hasn't anyone done it? <laughs> okay, wait, 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 you heard it here first, okay? Copyright, copyright. So in 1986, the Singapore Botanic Gardens was put under the charge of the National Parks Board, which is the board that currently still runs it and it was revitalized with new and improved public amenities research facilities and training facilities which we'll talk about later and then finally there was also a tire saw extension that was announced in 2009 which adds 18 hectares of land to expand it to almost four times its original size in 1859. We've actually placed more land into the Botanic Gardens in order to increase the amount of things we can do. And it's not just about having people there, right? This isn't simply about, hey, we need Singaporeans to have a more leisurely spot to hang out. No, no, no. We extended this land so that we have more research facilities. We had more training institutes. Because as we'll find out in just a bit, a lot of people come here to actually learn from the way we do cultivation and research studies. In 1859, it was 32 hectares. Today, it is 82 hectares of land. That's how big it's grown. <laughs> it's, re it's really a nuts number when you think about it, right? We have locations inside that currently uh, are still there, like the Shaw Foundation Symphony Stage. That's where, you know, you have all your free concerts and stuff. I went mm. to watch a, an IT performance of some of Hayao Miyazaki's 
our greatest hits there. It's a very uh, family day thing to do, you know, to just go down there, set up a picnic and just watch a concert. Why is this our UNESCO World Heritage Site? Aside from the fact that it has tons of great stories, there are certain criteria that, you know, need to be met. So let me take you through them, okay? Uh, the first one is that uh, the Singapore Botanic Gardens has been a center for plant research in Southeast Asia since the 19th century, contributing significantly to the expansion of plantation rubber in the 20th century and continues to play a leading role in the exchange of ideas, knowledge, and expertise in tropical botany and horticultural sciences. This is, this is directly lifted from the UNESCO website itself. So we know that this place, not only is it historically very deep, but because of its continued efforts and how it's developing, I guess, the research front in this day and age. And I guess as a comparison, when it comes to World Heritage Sites, there are only three gardens in the world that have been given the UNESCO recognition. And the Botanic Gardens is the only tropical garden that has been given the recognition, which goes again to why it's so important, because it's really thinking about research and cultivation for and from the tropical region, right, which is such a, a rich biodiversity, a rich set of flora, and I guess even fauna, right? And now's a good time for us to take a break. If you've been listening to SG Explain for a while now, you'll know that Elliot and I are doing this completely on the side. But we want more people to know about Singapore and what makes us special, whether you're Singaporean or a foreigner or someone who's just intrigued by our culture. So help us by subscribing, sharing this on your socials, following us on Facebook and Instagram, and making sure you share your favorite episode with someone you care about today. We hope that SG Explained becomes a staple podcast for everyone who cares about Singapore. Thank you for your support so far, and we look forward to creating more episodes for you. Go back to the episode. One of the key, I guess, features or one of the reasons why they want to really protect these gardens is really the integrity of the space. Uh, the Singapore Botanic Gardens contains all the attributes necessary to express its outstanding universal value. This is a, a term coined by UNESCO itself. Uh, and it fully contains the original layout of the Botanic Gardens, right? So while we talk about Lawrence Niven's original design, this is something which is almost like necessary or something which they really hold pride to. A number of specific attributes, including historic trees and plantings, uh, the garden design which we talked about, and historic buildings and structures combine to illustrate the significant purpose of the Singapore Botanic Gardens over its history. This is one of the few gardens that you would go to and they have all the, uh, you know, those plaques, right? They're stuck in the ground and you can read all about it. Another thing about this place is the authenticity of the Singapore Botanic Gardens. It's demonstrated by the continued use as a botanic garden and as a place of scientific research. So the authenticity of material remains at the property is, is illustrated by the well-researched historic trees and other plantings, uh, historic elements of design, spatial layout, uh, and the historic building structures, which we kind of talked about just now as well. The authenticity criteria is about making sure that what is being submitted is actually historical is actually developed over a period of time rather than artificially putting things together and saying like, hey, this is British colonial garden. It should deserve an award, right? It's not just about that. It's about really making sure that the history is embedded within the garden. Most of the Singapore Botanic Gardens is like a national park and the other designations include like conservation areas, uh, tree conservation areas and a nature area, uh, which is usually applied to like rainforests, right? But the cool part about this that I like is that there are 44 heritage trees, 
within the property. And a number of them are protected by actual structures as houses of the former Raffles College, Raffles Hall, um, the EJH Corner House, so uh, named after our good intern during the Japanese occupation. Uh, there's Burkill Hall, Holtham Hall, Ridley Hall, uh, a place called House 6. I've never been to House 6, so I don't know what it is. Uh, the Garage, Bandstand, and Swan Lake Gazi. These are all specific territories within the Botanic Gardens itself. One of the most famous trees in the Botanic Gardens is the Tembusu tree. And the reason why it's so famous is because it's on the back of the $5 note issued under the Portrait series. So you'll actually see it's this huge tree, very, very magnificent. There's a fence erected around it to prevent damage to the roots, but Essentially, you have a lot of people who just go there to admire the tree. It's kind of sentimental to the Singapore identity as well, really just because of how it's memorialized. So the Singapore Botanic Gardens is protected primarily through the Planning Act of Singapore, which regulates conservation and development and requires permits to be obtained for new development of works. That makes sure that any kind of changes or additions to the botanic gardens goes through the proper approval process. All the preservation intent is maintained. What's at stake is our one UNESCO World Heritage Site. So the amount of policy that's in place to ensure that, you know, we keep something of historical value, but also at the same time making sure that we have, we're future-proofing ourselves. The kind of jobs that you can apply for within Singapore Botanical Gardens itself, they range from a maintenance of the gardens to very high-key policy and negotiation type job. I thought it'd be useful to talk about the different parts of the garden. We've kind of mentioned some of them. So there's the National Orchid Garden, which is it's a garden within the Botanic Gardens. It's a kind of garden inception, really the forefront of orchid studies and a pioneer in the cultivation of hybrid. It's free of charge for the Botanic Gardens. The Orchid Garden itself has a small nominal fee to really fund a lot of the research that's going on. The Botanic Gardens is actually open from 5 a.m. to 12 midnight daily. And so you're able to go in and do many things. And one of those things could be the orchid garden. There's also the rainforest, which is basically the actual rainforest and they made it accessible for people to like walk through. Around six hectares in size and it's older than the gardens itself. There's a ginger garden, which is focused on research around gingers. There is the Botany Center and Tanglin Gate, which are some of these architectural constructs. The Botany Center, of course, does research and a library on botany and horticulture. There's a Jacob Ballas Children's Garden, which was named after Jacob Ballas, a donor. It's a much quieter part of the Botanic gardens actually a lot of people don't know that you know you can take your kids there and really just have a great time there there is the shaw foundation symphony stage where there are free concerts on the weekends so that's it's just to say that there's a lot that you can do within the botanic gardens there are ten thousand species of flora spread over the 82 hectares area uh, and the distance between the north and south end of the gardens is 2.5 kilometers so that's the scale of it each year the Botanic Gardens receives about 4.5 million visitors. That's the level of foot traffic. Huh? That's crazy. There are some other places I thought I would want to highlight as well. Places that I personally enjoy. They're not huge attractions, but I would dare say uh, worth heading into. We mentioned the Ginger Gardens just now. Very near is actually uh, this thing called the Ginger Falls. There's a little, like, little rock enclave, a little cave thing. You can walk by and there's a little mini waterfall. That you can uh, <laughs> that you can kind of like walk behind. There is uh, one place called the Sundial Garden as well. If you guys are interested in 
trying to read a sundial in this day and age. Uh, you don't have to go to a museum. The Botanic Gardens has one uh, right smack in the center. There are these like, marble statues that kind of surround it and in the middle is a sundial. We have this place called the Bandstand, which is actually very near this uh, Vanda Miss Joachim Grove. So if you want to really check out our national flower, there is a grove for you to kind of uh, walk through and see it up close and personal. Maybe what's not obvious is that there are a bunch of restaurants within the Botanic Gardens too. So you have Alia, which is Mortsen kind of restaurant. And then there's Corner House, which is a one Michelin star restaurant. If you really want that full experience of having like a fine dining meal with the garden as your backdrop, that's a great way to do it. It's in a colonial bungalow. Uh, ever since we got the MRT line, like the circle line to take us to the Botanic Gardens, it's actually been so much more accessible. My foreign friends, they come out of the Newton Circus, uh, eat with me, and then say, hey, let's go to the, to the gardens. I want to go check it out. And you'd be surprised how many hours you can actually spend. I realize it's the same for me. A lot of my friends who came to Singapore, I will take them on the traditional tour of like Marina Bay, Chinatown, maybe like Pulau Ubin or Sentosa. If they're here for a while longer, the moment they go to the Botanic Gardens, you keep wanting to go back because there's so much to do and so much to see. And I'm always very surprised by it because to us, it's just the Botanic Gardens. But yeah, to yeah. these guys, it's a whole portal into a well-preserved way to see nature, to really uh, slow down the pace within the city. Growing up in Singapore, you really do take these things for granted, man. Like, I used to see it as that place that you would go for like school excursions. <laughs> That's about it. Only much, much older now, I'll be like, oh dang, this place is pretty dope. We've hyped up a lot about these research programs and study exchanges, uh, but the full extent of what they are uh, really is is so extensive. I had to go to the NPAC site uh, just to read up on all uh, these different programs, right? So what they do is that they, uh, they offer opportunities to come and carry out like short-term study visits with their staff members. So you're, you're not just like doing independent study. They have professionals who are able to guide you and teach you in uh, fields like research work, horticultural work, the garden management itself, and uh, like educational outreach. These special programs are offered to uh, a wide range of professionals as well. So it's not just students we're looking at. We're looking at botanists, taxonomists, tertiary level students, and all sorts of professional working staff uh, in other sort of botanical gardens. They do things in herbaria, Aborator, forest departments, and um, you know other educational institutes alike. Uh, these programs, although very wide, they are highly competitive. And from my understanding, I don't know the exact numbers, but there is a very limited intake per year. I can totally imagine it <laughs> within the world of gardens. <laughs> the botanic Singapore Botanic Gardens probably stands at a much higher traction compared to a lot of other gardens. Yeah, it's, it's an actual leading institution in Singapore and I, I'm surprised we don't boast about that more often. Speaking about research, one of the research programs that attracted my eyes was the Seed Bank. So the Seed Bank expands the garden's conservation capacity by safeguarding the germplasm of threatened plant species in Southeast Asia, partially for visitors to learn about the importance of seed storage for species conservation and plant biodiversity, but it's also about making sure that the seed dispersal and germination through curated programs at galleries and outdoor gardens. It's about preserving plant species at the risk of cross-pollination, at the risk of like, complete eradication, especially because you're looking at Southeast Asia where not every country and not every region is going to have the same level of care and protection that the Botanic Gardens can offer. You can find out a lot more on, on the NPARC site. Yeah, you could totally go there and book a tour 
from the visitor center so that they can show you around. You can also book the venue for your events, whether it's a meeting or a wedding. So there's so many things you can do besides just going there to enjoy the park or to go for research. Totally recommend to find out what interests you and to just, you know, participate. You know, let's go do what we can now that things are a bit more open. Support these places because they are ours to cherish and keep. Thank you all for tuning in for this episode of SG Explained. Uh, it was a wonderful time sharing new knowledge with you guys as always. This has been Rovek. This is Elliot. Okay.